Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. There have been a number of big developments on the school choice front recently. Within the last few weeks alone, Iowa and Utah, respectively, became the third and fourth states to adopt universal education savings accounts, or ESAs. And an Oklahoma Charter School Board met to consider certifying a Catholic school, which, if approved, would be the first religious charter school in the country. To discuss these developments, I invited Nicole Stell Garnett onto the podcast. Nicole is the John P. Murphy Foundation Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School, the author of two books, and the co-editor of a new book coming out in March titled The Case for Parental Choice, God, Family, and Educational Liberty. Nicole, welcome to the report card. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So let's start big picture. We'll get down to the ground level soon enough. You know, people have been talking about school choice or educational choice or parent choice, some version of that for a long time. And, you know, my question out of the gate is, what is the overarching goal here with choice? And I ask this because you'll see a number of opponents and they'll say things like, well, choice proponents just want to privatize schools or they want to destroy public schools or subsidize religion or segregate schooling, not really by race, but the implication is there. So with so many people saying, well, here's here's the goal of school choice, folks, what would you say the overarching goal of the movement for K-12 choice is? So first I would say that I think those the overarching goals have been articulated in different ways at different times. To me, um, I think that the most important goals, if I can articulate two, Uh, The first is to provide kids, particularly disadvantaged kids, um, poor kids, with uh, access to more and better schools. Um, And the second is to empower parents uh, to make decisions, especially poor parents, those who don't have the resources to otherwise do so, to make decisions about their children's education um, because parents are the first and best uh, educators of their children and because they know them better and love them more than anyone else. Okay, so you're editing a book coming out soon, The Case for Parental Choice, God, Family, and Educational Liberty. It's the case for parental choice, not for school choice. So that suggests that parental choice is sort of something distinct or has a particular meaning. So what do you mean when you use the term parental choice? So the book itself is a, is a, a series of essays that I didn't write, but were written over the course of the last 50 years by... Uh, one of the nation's uh, oldest and foremost parental choice advocates, a guy named Jack Coons, who's now 93 years old. Um, and he has been making up a, a parental choice case for education, educational choice since the 60s. And his point is that parents know their children better and love them more and that they are systematically disenfranchised, if you will. Those decisions are taken from them and given to bureaucrats. So his case for choice, parental choice, has always been about parents. Um, I think parental choice is different than school choice, as we see with the development of ESA. School choice is about more and better schools, giving kids access to different kinds of schools that might serve their unique, their unique needs better. Um, I've long been an advocate for school choice. Parental choice is bigger than that. It can include homeschooling and micro-schooling and all kinds of new educational innovations that parents might choose over traditional bricks-and-mortar schools. 
All right. So I think we'll get back to some of these ideas and arguments later, particularly some of the ideas about religious schooling and school choice. But I do want to get a little bit into some of the specifics and lay some groundwork. So when we talk about choice, many times people will talk about charter schools or vouchers or tax credit scholarships. I think people know what charter schools are. But uh, what are the differences that you see between vouchers and maybe tax credit scholarships, but certainly about ESAs, which seem to be so popular? How do these things differ from each other? Right. It's a great question. I don't know that everybody knows what a charter school is, but um, we'll leave that to the side. I will say that my students now know what charter schools are. And when I taught education law 10 years ago, they didn't. But so that says something about where we are. Um, Okay, there are three big buckets of devices for for choice, parental choice in the United States. The first, as you mentioned, is vouchers. They're basically scholarships provided by the state. So my uh, children attend a my one now attends a Catholic school where there are kids that get vouchers from the state of Indiana. That if they qualify, they show up. They tell the state, send the money that for my scholarship to St. Joe Grade School. That's a voucher. It's just a straight up scholarship. Scholarship tax credit programs use tax policy to incentivize donations to scholarship programs that are private. So if I give money to Step Up for Students in Florida, which is the largest of these programs, uh, Step Up for Students is a nonprofit. It provides scholarships to kids to go to private schools. And the state of Florida, if I were a resident and I'm not, if I were a corporation and I'm not, would give me 100% tax credit for my donation to Step Up. So it's a tax, it's just like any other tax credit program, but it focuses on scholarships for schools. Both of those programs, again, are school choice programs. The money goes to scholarships that puts kids in bricks and mortar schools. ESAs are bigger than that. ESAs are savings account programs that the the state essentially says to a parent, if you choose not to go to a public school, we will give you usually 90, 80, 90% of the money allocated for your child um, to use on a variety of educational purposes. That can be tuition, Probably a majority of kids in these programs do go to bricks and mortar schools and use it as a scholarship program, but it can be other things. It can be educational therapies. Uh, you can band together with other parents to, to form a micro school. You can homeschool and buy curricula uh, for your homeschooling. You can you can invest in test prep and tutoring. So the education savings account is not a school choice program. It is a it's a pure parental choice program that maximizes the options available for parents to extend beyond scholarships. All right. So this change between these things, ESAs are sort of the latest of these to come on the scene. And like you say, it's not really a school choice program, even if it's often used for school choice. So it, it is, but it's it's sort of a, a both and, right? But that raises a question to me, and this may get in the weeds here, but I think that that sort of evolution of these programs makes me wonder about the parental choice and where it comes from. So legacy school choice, if that was directly linked to schools, um, well, the tax credit scholarships, to some degree, were a way to get around blocks on courts or constitutions, right? So we, we want parents to get scholarships so it's not a direct route of dollars from the state to the schools. And ESAs may have been the same sort of thing. This is a way to get around, uh, and, and, and not only, but it is a functional way to give parents money so that the state isn't giving money directly to schools, but so that it goes through parents. So this is kind of a two-part question. Is the parental choice lane uh, sort of a response to these 
legal moves that have created these new mechanisms, or the, particularly the ESA mechanism? Does it predate it? And does it matter? So I think that you're right, that there was certainly um, thinking and maybe the necessity in some states, the rise of uh, scholarship tax credits were a way to get around so-called Blaine amendments, state constitutional limitations on funding religious schools in particular. Um, And there was a thinking that they would be a safer legal bet because the money was going even more indirectly than a voucher. A voucher is still indirect. I mean, the kids who show up at St. Joe grade school, the state's funding the kid, not the school. But this was thinking a way to get around these potential state constitutional impediments to uh, private school choice. Um, in some cases, that was the correct. In other cases, it might have been an abundance of caution. Um, ESAs are also indirect, even more indirect, arguably. Um, and so they would hopefully get around those impediments as well. But I think there's a lot more going on than just trying to get around state constitutions or to make sure that these programs are immune to challenge by um, you know, teachers unions or whoever always challenge them. Um, I think that this, there were also political bets going on here. It was easier to sell a, a tax credit program. I could get a tax credit for installing um, environmentally friendly windows in my house. Why not give me a tax credit for donating to a scholarship program that helps poor kids go to better schools than the ones they're currently enrolled in? Um, and so I think there was this political side to it, too. They were more politically palatable. What's going on politically with ESAs, I think, is even more interesting something's happening here. It's like the old, what is the um, Buffalo Springsteen, what, Springfield song? Something's happening here. No. There's something strange going on that no one expected a relatively short time ago that we're moving from very incremental reforms in 31 states to maximal reforms in four states and counting. I think that's political more than legal. Maybe it's a lot of it's covid frustration with parents that sort of were told their kids couldn't go to school for 18 months. Some of it may be an objection to some of the curricular stuff going on that's seen as overly ideological, but parents are asserting their right to take control over their kids' education, and that is resonating politically. I don't think that's about the law. I think that's about a shift in argument um, for uh, for um the reasons we have choice. So let me ask you particularly about the religious uh, aspect of this, right? So there's always been uh, religious schools. There's been Jewish schools and Catholic schools and, you know, Christian schools, schools of all stripes that are religiously oriented. And, you know, parents have paid full freight for those for much of the time. I mean, you can say that, but actually Catholic schools were subsidized by the Catholic church and so forth. Nonetheless, they were sort of independent of the government. A lot of the criticism of school choice that you might hear out there might be, oh, well, they just want to promote their church or their religion. And other folks will say, well, you know, this is a religious liberty issue. We shouldn't only make available to wealthy folks the ability to send their kids to religious schools. I mean, how central do you think this is to these arguments? And how central do you think uh, religious concerns are to the school choice movement just in broad strokes? So, yeah, it's a great question. I think it's really important to point out that we are really unusual in the United States 
for the lack of educational pluralism that we have historically had vis-a-vis -vis other countries in the developed world and in the developing world. Most other countries fund a range of schools, including religious schools, and we don't do so for very particular historical reasons, including anti-Catholicism in the 19th century. So we have this path dependence toward 90% of our kids being in government schools that is very, very unusual. So I, I don't think it's, it, it seems weird to say like, oh my gosh, the rest of the world is overrun with you know religious crazies because the rest of the world is actually funding kids to go to the schools that include religious religious schools and when you, um, when you say other countries like this Nicole, are we are we talking about you know like the Liechtensteins and the uh moldovas of the world or are these are these countries that you're talking about sort of like you know regular old oecd countries the latter so um mexico and greece don't fund any schools other than government schools but um by and large most countries like I said, in the developed world and the developing world, to some extent, fund non-state schools, including religious schools, and to varying degrees. So, um, for example, Australia funds every school. Every kid gets the same amount of money to go to the public or private school. And the private schools that take more poor kids get a little more money. So, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's pluralism is the norm internationally. We are an outlier. Um so that's that. That's a B. To what extent um, are re religious concerns motivating school choice? Historically, I don't think that's really been what they're they're about. I mean, the Catholic Church has since the 19th century argued that on equality grounds that it should its schools should receive public funding because they educated so many kids and did so well. But really, the more modern parental choice movement has really been about social justice. It's been about getting kids out of schools that fail them and getting them into schools that will succeed with them. And often those schools are religious schools. And often those schools are religious schools uh, serving non-co-religionists, including Catholic schools and Lutheran schools in urban areas, um, because they believe that that's the right thing to do. Catholic schools in particular have long been center of the, the debate about parental choice, but not because Catholic parents were clamoring to have vouchers, but because poor parents, those were the best options for their kids. And they did a great job historically educating um, disadvantaged kids. So this is an interesting way to frame this when you start with, well, internationally, this is actually pretty common. We're not blazing a trail here. We're out of step with most other nations. That puts a, a different valence on the question. But what would you say is the government's interest, right? Some would say, well, the government's interest is to maintain a public school monopoly. But what is the sort of government interest that you would suggest that the government has for supporting a pluralistic or choice-filled education system? The government's interest ought to be to ensure that children are being well-educated to be productive happy citizens. Um, and so therefore the government's interest ought to be to promote um, that goal through a plural system, giving parents decision-making over their kids, because I, I mean, no two kids are the same and no one system is likely to serve all kids equally well. I have four and they're all very different. So it seems to me that the government, if, if the goal of public education is to educate the public then allowing parents to make decisions about what schools are best for their kids 
because the parents are going to know better than the bureaucrats what schools are best for their kids advances that goal rather than saying the goal of public education is to maintain a system or in our case systems there are about 18,000 school districts in this country um, systems of public education that it should be about the kids education and not about the systems so we mentioned sort of earlier in the intro choice programs particularly ESAs had quite a run lately. And I want to get back to those trends, but you're a law professor. You clerk for Clarence Thomas at the Supreme Court. So I want to get a little bit to the legal setting because we've been there up at the court. There's a number of recent Supreme Court rulings that come down here, but one of the most recent ones that's important is Carson versus Macon. Can you explain what that case was about and how it plays into some of these questions? Of course. So uh, a little over 20 years ago, in a case called Zellman versus Simmons-Harris in 2002, uh, the Supreme Court held that it did not violate the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Sometimes people use, say, separation of church and state. That's not in the Constitution, but it, it did not violate the Establishment Clause to allow kids uh, to use publicly funded vouchers to attend religious schools. Um, so that's 20 years ago. The state could, if they chose to, give uh, kids the option of attending uh, religious schools along with other kinds of schools with public funds. 20 years later in Carson versus Macon, the court says, if you choose to fund private education, you must allow parents to choose religious schools. So we go from can to must in a 20 year window, almost 20 years to the day, interestingly. So Carson is a is a case of old, um, a very old, effectively a voucher program from the 19th century. If you lived in a town in Maine that didn't have a public high school, the town had the option of doing something called tuitioning, which is to allow you to take the money that was allocated for your education, your secondary education, and spend it wherever you wanted, anywhere in the world. You could go to the neighboring public district. You could go to Cho Andover, Exover, French boarding school. The only restriction was you couldn't go to a religious school. And in Carson versus Macon, the Supreme Court says that's unconstitutional because it's religious discrimination. Fun fact, I was um, among, I was on the team of lawyers that first challenged that program in 1996. So I, 25 years later, 26 years later, I finally win. Um, but uh, so that that's a very important principle. So it says does the, the First Amendment requires neutrality toward religion and neutrality is a two way street. You can't be hostile to religion and you can't prefer religion. So if you the court makes very clear, you don't have to set up a private school choice program. But if you do, you may not exclude religious schools from the range of options available to parents. Yeah. And I think that's something that most people don't realize is there's a requirement in there. And it's kind of like the two way street, exactly as you put it. And I think uh, it was the chief justice who said, look, you don't have to you don't have to set up this program. But if you do, you just can't discriminate by religion across it. And that brings me uh, a next topic that I want to talk about. And we're recording on February 16th. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this week is that a couple of days ago, the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board, which authorizes all virtual charter schools in the state, met to consider certifying a virtual Catholic charter school. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit more about what is going on uh, in Oklahoma? Yes. Yeah, so 
it's a big deal. Uh, 45 states have charter school laws. Um, all of them prohibit religious charter schools. They require the schools to be secular. Um, and most of them prohibit charter schools from being affiliated with religious organizations. So there's a double prohibition on religious charter schools. Um, so the Oklahoma, the Diocese of Oklahoma, of Tulsa and the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City are applying for a charter to run a Catholic virtual charter school, and they intend to be fully Catholic. Um, you may ask, how could that be? Because that would violate both prohibitions in Oklahoma law. They're religiously affiliated and they plan to be religious. And um, that's because it's related to Carson, and I can get into the weeds if you want me to. But in December of last year, the Attorney General of Oklahoma issued an opinion letter that said um, that those two prohibitions on religious charter schools ran afoul of the rule articulated in Carson, that they were um, discriminatory um, against religious providers and against religious content, and that violated the free exercise clause. Um, he had a nice little line in there. He basically said, the state cannot enlist private providers of education and then say to promote diversity and then say that all religion is the wrong kind of diversity. Um, so he said, he said, basically, charter schools in, um, in Oklahoma are, a, it's a program of private school choice. Charter schools in all 45 states that have them are privately operated. They're called public schools. But what the attorney general concluded, and I agree, is that for constitutional purposes, what matters is the private provision, not the title that they're given in state law. Because they're privately operated and not closely controlled by the government, then they are effectively private schools and the Carson rule applies. And so therefore you cannot say no religious charter schools. Now, how does this interact with Carson v. Macon, right? Because, I mean, this is like some people brought this up right away. Hey, this could open the door for religious charters. And it is a interesting question primarily because of what Carson v. Macon did. It didn't say, well, you can have religious charters, right? It said if you're going or it didn't say anything about charters. It said if you're going to have private school choice, once you have it, you can't then discriminate against religious providers. And so the question is, are we up for something that would be analogous and just jump from the private school to the charter world? And might that mean that everybody, uh, every state, all these 45 states that have charter laws on the books that have these prohibitions, that those prohibitions could be taken down and the walls might be opened up at some point at the Supreme Court to bring down any prohibitions on religious charters? Is that, am I overstating it? Well, we're a long way from there. One charter school application for a virtual, St. Isidore Sevilla virtual Catholic school in Oklahoma. Um, so we're a long way from 45 states. Um, but you're right, you know, the, so Car it really turns on this line in Carson that says you don't have to subsidize private education, but if you do, you can't refuse to subsidize religious education. Justice Breyer says in dissent in Carson, well, what about charter schools? So already the issue is joined. Really, the, the, the question really comes down to what are charter schools for purposes of the federal, of the, the Constitution, right? So they're called public schools. They're publicly funded, but privately operated. So if that, if they're, if they're more like private schools participating in a private school choice program, 
um, then you can't prohibit religious charter schools. If they're really more like district schools, then you may not, not only probably can prohibit the religious charter schools, you may have to. The establishment clause might require you to because district public schools have to be secular. Um, and that turns on a, a complicated doctrine called the state action doctrine. Um, the, the state action doctrine basically boils down to the following. Usually when a private um, actor, usually the Constitution doesn't apply to private actors. So my children might wish that the free speech clause applied to me, but it doesn't. Right. So they don't have free speech rights, though they exercise the they act as if they do. Because um, Constitution, they can't sue me for violating the free speech clause. Um, most of the time, private actors, including private actors that cooperate with the government, are not bound by the federal constitution, including the Establishment Clause. Um, now, sometimes they are, but that's only when the government is so closely controlling the private actor that we would say it's effectively the government. So that's called they're a state actor. A private prison, for example, would be a effectively the government so closely controlling it, it would probably be a state actor a privately funded a school that's privately operated but funded through esas would not even though it's being funded by the government in to large extent say now in arizona most kids on private school now get seven thousand dollars to go to private school in arizona um so the question for charter schools that are kind of in this hybrid world is are they on this most of the time the constitution doesn't apply and not state actors or are they state actors? If they're not state actors, what the Oklahoma attorney general said and what I've been arguing for a long time is that they're private schools and then Carson applies and you, you have to let them be religious, that free exercise clause. That is a, going to be the subject of litigation soon. Probably in Oklahoma, if this is approved, it will be challenged, but probably elsewhere as well. Um, one really kind of quirky thing about this doctrine is that it all turns on the extent, kind of on the extent of government control. So it, charter schools might not be state actors in Oklahoma, but they might, and not subject to the Constitution in Oklahoma, but they might be in California, where they're a lot more closely controlled by the government. So to your question about, will the Supreme Court, you know, make a magic ruling that applies to all 45 states, the answer is no, it can't. Because um, each st the, the question is sort of depends on the rate, the extent of the regulation, what the law says. It's really a state by state analysis. Right. So if there were a lawsuit against a state on charter grounds, a la Carson and Macon, that could conceivably go to the Supreme Court. But the decision about whether charter schools in Oklahoma or Louisiana or wherever state that would likely end up in state courts to de decide the state actor issue. Am I, am I hearing that? Well, the state action issue is a federal issue. Uh, I'm just saying that if, so there's actually an interesting case pending right now. It has nothing to do with religion, a cert petition pending in the Supreme court. Uh, it's called Peltier versus charter day school. Um, it's a case out of North Carolina where a charter school required girls to wear skirts and it was challenged as an equal protection violation. Um, it went to the, the Fourth Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals said that the charter school was a state actor. So if this skirt requirement violated the equal protection clause, leaving aside whether that is true, if it was a public school, there's like this fight right now. Is it really private? Is it really public? And there's a cert petition pending um, that would resolve that question whether North Carolina charter schools are state actors. If they aren't, um, then 
I think what would happen, there'd be different litigation in federal courts about the details of South Carolina law and <laughs> Georgia law. So um, it's there's just the, the Supreme Court can't resolve it once and for all. It can just say it can just sort of provide guidance for lower courts um, about whether or not they're state actors. In this in this case in North Carolina, kind of North Carolina, which it, there are signs that the court's probably going to take it. I think that the charter religious charter schools question is not unknown to the justices. They surely know that that is the sort of next question coming. So I hear what you're saying. There's a number of considerations here. They pull in one direction or, or the other. But if somebody asked you sort of simply speaking, give me give me the non-economist, I, uh, depends on the one hand on the other answer, but the straight answer, do you think charters are public schools? No. Well, that's I mean, I think states can call them that. Right. <laughs> but... I mean, I mean, it's just sort of words back to the net, you know, public and private. We have these these lines in the United States that are different than other places. But no, I mean, for purposes of the federal constitution in most states, if not all charter schools ought to be treated as private schools. They are not closely controlled by the government. The whole point of their existence is to give private actors freedom to innovate that makes them a totally different animal than the, the Blue Valley North High School where I attended the Mustangs in Overland Park, Kansas. You know, that was a government entity. The classical charter school that's, you know, in this, involved in this dispute or the virtual charter school that the dioceses in Oklahoma City are proposing, they're not the government. They're going to be privately operated, lightly regulated, supervised, sure, but lots of private schools are supervised by the government, regulated. So, no, I think the charter school um, people don't like to hear that, but that's my view. So one more question in the weeds here before I pull out of this. So, you know, one of the things about charter schools is, well, it depends on who authorizes them. I'm not saying it depends on whether they're public schools, but, you know, LAUSD is an authorizer for some schools, right? The Los Angeles School District. It strikes me, though, that if the legal frameworks come up in saying, well, they are not state actors in this state and under Carson Macon, they you really can't discriminate against uh, religious applicants. Then if the state sort of rules go along with the legal framework that say, yeah, you know, religious charters, uh, they get a bite at the apple, just like everybody else. They get an application and can't be discriminated against. Then you could see a world where even large school districts, which may very well not be in love with charters in general, would not be able to discriminate on religious grounds. Am I getting this right? Yes. I mean, if I'm right, then the, and the Los Angeles Unified School District uh, and, and a, you know, the authorization process, the authorizer would have to not discriminate on the basis of religion. That if I mean, because that would be religious discrimination. But I mean, I think you hinted something is, you know, um, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Even if I'm right, like on the grounds, the constitutional grounds. Um, that doesn't mean the authorizers ha can't say no for other reasons and, and authorizations are way down. So they can say you didn't do a needs assessment or we don't like your ESL plan. I'm, and so, I mean, it's not like that it's a magic wand. I mean, I think some religious organizations think like we can all be charter schools and everything will be so fun and easy. I mean, that's not the world we live in. So so first of all, they get it's they would have to comply with all the other regulations. 
And that leads me to my second point. Because of that, they might not choose to do this. I mean, if I were a religious school and I was in Arizona and I could either be a charter school or participate in the ESA program, I might choose the ESA program rather than the dumping through the hoops of authorization, even if I got more money as a charter school because it just more freedom. Um, that's kind of a different question than the constitutional question. Some opponents, I mean, some proponents of parental choice, and I'm like the biggest parental choice ever, have criticized me for making this argument because they say this is a bad idea for religious schools to do this. My well, answer is... You're, you're jumping the gun on my next question, but let me <laughs> let me go ahead and ask, ask it uh, now. Like, what are those downsides? What are the very real downsides that there could be either for religious schools or for, you know, religions, the church more broadly or the synagogue that's attached to it or, or what have you? What are the dangers that might be posed with trying to explore this charter venture? So, um, yeah, so obviously you would, one downside is you have to go through authorization. Unlike an ESA or a voucher, existing schools can participate Charter authorization, you have to go through the authorization process and create a new school. That's a, at least a bureaucratic headache. There tend to be more curricular requirements, more labor requirements, uh, non-discrimination requirements, um, and um, some control over student discipline that might not exist in these other programs. So right now, student schools that are participating in private school choice programs are relatively, I mean, charter schools are have a lot of freedom, enough probably to not be state actors, but Charter schools participating in these in private school choice programs have are very lightly regulated. Um, and so I think any religious organization that was thinking about becoming a charter school should take a very close look at what it means to be a charter school. What are the regulations? What does authorization look like? Uh, what reviews would happen? I mean, everything else like this is not a just because you're religious doesn't mean you don't have to play by the charter school rules. And, and I think so that would just take up, that'd be a prudential judgment, but that's different than the legal question. Sure. Sure. All right, Nicole, we've reached that halfway point uh, on the report card where we do a section called grade it. You're a professor. You should be ready for this. Are you ready to go? Well, we do have a lot of great inflation in the academy, you know, so you want me to grade it like a high school teacher? Yeah, I want you to grade it like uh, like you would grade your students, I'm sure. Uh, tough and unyielding. All right. First off, co-authoring with a spouse. <laughs> uh, well, A minus. <laughs> What's the hardest part of, of co-authoring with a spouse? Um, well, my husband's really a big, big fan of the unit modifier rule, so he hyphenates everything. Um, no, co-authoring. I think we uh, it's it's good to co-author with your spouse because uh, we we have similar views, but we have very different uh, approaches methodologically. So it's been besides the unit modifier rule, I think it's pretty good. All right, that's the A minus. Uh, <laughs> all right, broken windows theory. Um, B plus. <laughs> uh, so I, I think I say A minus B plus. Is that allowed? I would say two things. First of all, I think that the broken windows theory as urban development policy is is an A. So understanding that minor quality, like quality of life issues, are critical to the health and happiness and wealth of cities and their residents is it's like the fact that we've lost sight of that is terrible for our cities. 
I give it a B plus A minus because I think the the broken windows theory in its purest form, which is that small instantiations of disorder lead to big crimes, empirically uh, that is contested. The state of free speech at Yale Law School. <laughs> uh, D minus. <laughs> I think my, I, my alma mater, oh, well, maybe I give it a C minus because I mean, technically speaking, um, you know, they're not silencing uh, people officially, but they are the, the, the administration of my alma mater has lost the ability um, to control the students. So their students are shouting down one another in a, in a way that is not conducive to a free exchange of ideas. It, it may be uh, or is the number one law school in the country. Do you think that helps or hurts on this front? Yeah, so I think it it uh, it hurts, right? They they think they're kind of immune um, from criticism um, because the people students will always want to go there, and the judges will always want to hire their students to be their law clerks, and the law firms will always want to hire the students because they're the best students. So I also think it it has also become captured maybe um, by a certain entitlement mentality among some of the students, which you just seem to not really want to play by the rules of civil discourse. All right. Clerking for Clarence Thomas. A plus. I actually wrote a little thing on his 30th anniversary um, and I I closed it. um, Something like, um, God bless Clarence Thomas, a man whose goodness matches his greatness and the greatest man I've ever known. So working for him is amazing. He's an amazing, he's an amazing, inspiring figure, but he also just has a great heart. He was the only person in that building who knew everyone's name, everybody's name. Um, so, and I've kept in touch with him over the years and he remains a good friend and important mentor. That is a pretty good grade. I'll tell you, that's one of the strongest grades we've ever gotten on grade it. Um, how about the social value of college football? Ooh. I love it. (laughs) I've only experienced it really here at Notre Dame, but like it is the center of my social life for 14 weeks (laughs) every year. Everybody on campus, our economics department always has a big tailgate. The faculty and the students come together. And I find it's um, some people at Notre Dame complain, the faculty complain about us being so football focused, but I think it really brings people together. All right. Last one. To the law professor, law students today, maybe comparing them to law students, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Well, I give my students an A. Um, I love my students. They're great. Um, And uh, I I actually give Notre Dame an A for having fostered an environment where everybody sort of is respectful. Unlike my alma mater, I, I worry about what I read about and what I hear about law students not being able to engage fully in um, respectful debate about things about which we can intensely disagree. And I worry a lot that if we lose the ability to do that in the law, we're in trouble as a society because we lawyers are always supposed to be arguing both sides of the issue. So I feel like we got that here. So I give my kids an A. I I would give uh, elsewhere you know, the ones I don't know, a B or a B minus. 
All right. Thanks for uh, giving us some grades. Let me ask you something a, a little bit more focused on the school choice movement of the year, uh, Universal ESAs. Again, this is February 23. 2023 20, is still pretty young. Uh, but this year, we've had Universal ESA programs pop up in Iowa and Utah. Arizona has had one for uh, several months. West Virginia signed one in to law in 2021. So there's four states, but those aren't the only ones where ESAs have some momentum. Where's all this energy coming from? So we talked about this a little bit before. It's kind of an interesting question. What happened? Why? I think that there are two things going on. My husband and I, back to co-authoring with your with your spouse, wrote a little piece about this in City Journal not long ago. Um, COVID, um, I think frustration with COVID has really fueled, um, even before these ESAs, there was like 2021 was like the biggest year in school choice history. So there's sort of frustration with public schools remaining closed while p- private schools and religious schools like moved heaven and earth um, to open um, and to resume in-person instruction, including Notre Dame. Um, we were one of the few elite schools uh, that opened in 2020 and stayed open the whole time. But uh, so COVID makes it harder to make the argument you should keep the money in the schools, the public schools, because they, they were taking money and not operating. I think, as I mentioned before, some of it is frustration with ideological curricular content, I think less so than the frustration with COVID. But I also think it matters um, the shift in argument from let's rescue these kids, well, the first, you know, or let's improve test scores to let's trust parents has made a difference. That argument at this moment is resonating with people and it is causing these school choice program, these ESAs to expand. So I think you've argued that universal ESAs amount to parental choice in a way that charter schools and vouchers don't and won't. Can you tell me why and what's the difference there? And I'll just note that in most cases, people who get ESAs still use them for private school tuition. I mean, that's the bulk of that. But tell me how how they make a difference on parental choice. Well, I mean, they make a difference in the sense that um, they allow parents to be innovative, to use public funds in ways that are innovative outside of the traditional bricks and mortar school systems, like the charter schools, private school, well, the, the vouchers, tax credit scholarships. So they make a difference in that they're, they invite parents to be innovative and not just send their kid to a private school, I think it remains to be seen what that's going to look like. We don't really know. I think there are a lot of big questions about what, you know, what's going to happen in states with universal ESAs. Will more parents homeschool? Will we see more of these micro schools? Will new school system, new school networks pop up? Uh, the interestingly, the the Great Hearts Academies, which is a, a very successful, high performing charter school network um, of classical charter schools, announced in Arizona recently that it was going to op- open another network of schools that were Christian schools to participate in the ESA program. They would also be classical, but they would be focused on low income kids in the ESA program, and they would be explicitly Christian. I think they're called Great Hearts Christos. 
So I think we don't really know what's going to happen. And I think more will probably happen in Utah and Arizona and Iowa in innovative ways because there's more money than in West Virginia, where it's really not that much money. It's like $4,500, I think. So, um, so far, private school choice has both, mostly been used to fill seats in public in private schools. And I, I think we just will know a lot more in five years. I also think implementing, thinking really critically about implementing these things is, if this is going to work, the hard work is just happening after they get enacted. So we can't just declare victory and go home. So in states that have these ESAs, and let's exempt West Virginia from this because they have the low dollar figure. I mean, if you are a religious school, let's, let's assume that you have a choice of two paths. You could either try to go the charter route and break this ground, acknowledging that we're, we're not near universal religious chartering anytime soon, but that's a viable path that we've discussed earlier in the podcast. Or, um, hey, let's just do this via an ESA. Which path seems more viable now, you know, holding all things equal? Well, look, for two, two things, I mean, the charter route is not a viable path in any state except Oklahoma. I mean, you have to sue somebody and litigate and then win or get the attorney general like Oklahoma to f- declare the law constitutional. So it's not like you could go file for a charter. In- no, no, no. I just mean ass- assuming that that were to be the case, though, you have these two sort of frameworks that you might be able to build out a religious school under. One is the ESA and the other is a as of yet not established route through charters, but assuming that one did develop, I mean, would there actually be value to it in a state where there was a reasonably generous ESA? Um, you know, look, I'm for pluralism. So I, I'm for both. And if, if I think if I were running the diocese of Phoenix's Catholic school system, I would just stick with the ESAs for a lot of reasons. Um, I wouldn't want to hassle with the authorization process. I mean, the other thing we would have to say is like that we, the political realities facing charters right now are not great. I mean, there's just a lot of pressure on them. And there it's interesting, I think, like to why is ESAs happening now? It's one other reason might be that like all of the pressure and focus and, and negativity is now focused in the charter sector where the charter schools have all of a sudden become the bad guys and the, the, you know, the private school choice people have just sort of, well, whatever, this is a little thing over there. But um, so given the political realities of chartering uh, right now and the hassle of the authorization process and the relatively light regulation and ESAs, I think it's a lot. I, if you're a private school, you in a state like Arizona and the ESA is the clear choice. That doesn't mean it won't change over time and more regulations won't come in, but you know, I'd like to see a little bit of both. Why not? There's a bunch of folks who will say, hey, you uh, and and they'll say this about almost uh, any private school choice mechanism. But there's two things to think of here with some of these ESAs. One thing is just the general observation that, oh, well, this is going to rob money from public schools. And so that's something of a concern. The, the other question is, in some of these cases, the ESA is set up. So there's no sort of like um, you have to leave a public school to get it. If you're going to a private school and then the ESA becomes available next year, you get an ESA to fund what the previous year your family was funding through, you know, scholarships or through your own pocketbook. How do you respond to people who say, well, you know, we are robbing money from public schools 
to make these programs possible. Well, I mean, I don't understand why it is that a public school, two things, they're only losing the money for the kids they're no longer educating. So there's that. It's and it's only the state's share of the money. So many, uh, much of public education funding, as you know, is fixed, and so sometimes they end up with more per kid. Um, so I don't believe in hostage arguments. So that the argument that we're not going to let kids leave because then the schools will have less money isn't one that is really like attractive to me. I mean, why should they get money for kids that they don't educate? Um, so. I don't, I, that argument has never really been something that, you know, something that really moved me. And I am a public school kid. And as for the second, I mean, it seems to me that, that I mean, for many years, there's been a lot, le- a lot of sort of eligibility restrictions and other things. So you have to be a school, a public school transfer to get this, the voucher that remains the case in many states, or you have to have gotten a scholarship that's in Indiana, unless you got a scholarship tax credit, then you can get the voucher the next year. Um, I think in West Virginia, you actually have to be either a kindergartner or a public school transfer. I mean, as a a, a, a sort of the theory of choice, none of that makes, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, it it does hold, it limits the um, fiscal cost of the programs to the state because limiting the people who, are eligible to participate, but it also adds all kinds of clunkiness to these programs that make them harder to really be effective in the lives of kids. So, you know, I think we could have an honest debate about means testing. Like, should everybody get it? Or just kids who are disadvantaged or like, you know, just lower middle-class kids. Uh, But I don't think that like prior public school enrollment makes any sense except as a way to keep costs down so this is going to sound like an unrelated question but it's a very related question are the esas enough money ah it's a great question um i thought a lot about this because i mentioned implementation i've been writing uh some stuff about implementation i will send it to you when it's ready but um so one of the things that I think have we have observed in the private school choice world is that the money has not been sufficient to spur um, the development of new schools. So they've been seat filling, um, and uh, but not a lot of new schools. And I think that's because the, the average scholarship has been pretty low. Um, so the question is, how much is enough? I don't know. It's obviously going to depend. New York, you're going to need more money to start a new. I mean, I think we need enough so that we could honestly think that what's happening in Arizona with Great Hearts Cristo is going to happen, that we will spur the innovation, uh, the development of new schools and new school networks. That's what happened in the charter world. It was the rise of high performing CMOs that really turned the charter schools from like, you know, mom and pop enterprises into something that was a force to be reckoned with. Um, so I, we need enough money for that to happen. And I don't know what that is. Is $7,500 enough to spur a new school opening or an old school that's been closed in Gary, Indiana, reopening? You know, the, the Diocese of Gary, Indiana has Gary, Indiana has no inner city Catholic schools left, maybe one. So we need schools to reopen. So I don't know what the number is. I would like the number to be at least the parity with charter school funding, whatever that is. And it's usually more than the ESAs. 
um, charter schools get a fraction of public schools, but like we could, if you could get to that as a parity, I'd be happy because those are new schools. So one last question. You you talked a little bit about how, well, we want to grow schools, but certainly in the charter sector, we've seen things sort of mature and maybe mature to something of a, a stasis in a lot of places, but we see that it's sort of different now than it was, whatever, eight, 10 years ago. For folks who are interested in these choice evolutions and are watching sort of like the system sort of recalibrate and adjust and figure out what what differences these are going to make. How long do you think it'll take to recalibrate these education systems into this new pluralistic shape that is made by the ESAs? And what would you see as as hallmarks of success as those systems mature? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, so you probably know, I mean, how long did it take from the first charter school law in 1991 to the maturing of the charter school networks? I mean, I think it strikes me we're getting a little bit more mature. The private school choice world is still like kind of because the money has been small and there haven't been that many programs are kind of like stuck back in the early years of where charter schools were like before they matured and CMOs developed and and. Um, you know, they started really moving the needle on achievement data and started taking uh, large market shares in urban districts. So I, I would say that long. Um, I don't know how many years that is, 10 years. Um, you know, and I think so what are the hallmarks of success? Um, large scale participation. So we have, you know, a lot of states with uh, school choice, the, the participants lag far behind, below capacity. So large scale participation a healthy and growing private school infrastructure um, and a development of new schooling models, whether those are micro schools or other uh, private schools. Um, and, um, you know, it's complicated. I know people feel about differently about this with respect to uh, private education. Um, the student performance would be high. Uh, we would know that kids are in more are in better schools and that the, those schools are educating them at a very high level. And I think whether that's graduation rates or test scores or whatever, those would be the hallmarks. So participation, the development of a, a vibrant and growing private school infrastructure or ecosystem. And then the fourth, I would say, I think we want to see the development of more things like CMOs. So there are a handful of these private school management organizations, partnership schools in New York would be a great example. They operate. I think nine schools in Harlem and the Bronx and now four schools in Cleveland. The four schools in Cleveland are, they're all Catholic schools. They're, they all, the four schools in Cleveland are all voucher schools and they're very good and they really know what they're doing and they're moving the needle on achievement and they're growing. We would want to see more partnership schools or work organizations like that because I think that's where you would see that like the money's enough and people are who really know what they're doing are investing in this to make a real difference. But in the short term, I think we'll see a lot of kids going to private schools and filling empty seats and gradual and incremental kind of change. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Nicole Stell Garnett. We'll include a link to some of Nicole's work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. While you're there, take a moment to leave us a review and help other people find the show. 
You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malthus.